0: Of your lips, dear, but much more for the touch of your whips, dear. You can raise welts like nobody else as we dance to the masochism tango. Say, Our love is a flame, not an amber. Say, It's me that you
1: want to. Hello, my lovely little sluts, and welcome. The Ace Love Podcast. This is a podcast about all things sexy, all things love. From monogamy to group orgies, swingers, polyamory. From the most vanilla of people to the kinkiest of the kinkiest, the most devious of the lot. We talk about anything and everything to do with love, sex, relationships. But we include it with some advice, and obviously with a lot of trust between us all. So sit back and enjoy the Ace Podcast.
0: It's a flame with desire, which is why I perspire when we tango. You caught my nose, in your left castanet love. I can feel the pain yet. Love.
1: Every time Just a reminder to all you lovely people there You can find us online On Twitter at The Acelot Podcast Instagram, the same one And Facebook as well At The Acelot Podcast You can also email through to the show That's the ASLOP Podcast At gmail.com I love hearing what you guys have to say And I love responding to it So I can't wait to hear from you once again I have also now started A patreon account um basically to help with funding getting into schools and and spreading my message through those and through large corporations you can find that at patreon.com slash the podcast please do go check it out um the, the main thing that'll come from that is that there'll be weekly yeah that's right weekly episodes every two weeks will be the episode for this, the A-slot podcast in general, and then there'll be a bonus episode every week as well, just little short half an hour episodes for you to to latch on to. I hope you do go check it out, and uh, as always, let's get a slutty and please enjoy the episode. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me Don't hurt me No more Baby, don't hurt me Hey everybody! Welcome back to another episode of the ASAP podcast. As I've said in the intro, I'm going to go through this as as quickly as I can. Anyway, um, I'm currently in Sydney. I'm in my hotel room um, in Redfern, just out of Sydney. Uh, nice little place. Nice, I would say actually a nice bar downstairs, but it's a it's a good good wee bar down there. Um, I spent last night after my plane trip uh, getting. A little bit too intoxicated down there, but met some lovely, lovely, lovely people at the Glengarry. So that was nice. That was cool. Um, For those of you who don't know, the reason I'm over here is for podcasters meet and mingle uh, in association with Our Secret Spot. Uh, It's going to be myself, obviously, and the bedhoppers are going to be there. The guys from By the Buy podcast are going to be there. And I believe C from Swinging Down Under is also going to be there. So we're going to be meeting up, having a few drinks, having a meet and mingle tomorrow um, if you're listening to this live. So that's – what's that? That's Friday the 10th. Um, So that should be a lot of fun. I'm actually going to meet the By the By guys this evening to go and have dinner and and go to a play. So that's going to be really, really cool, really nice, really fun. Um, I went to the zoo today, which is odd, but – I love zoos, I have a thing for them, I don't know why, but yeah, that was really cool, it's just, it's really good for me at the moment to get, to to get away just a little bit, um, and have a bit of downtime, a bit of relaxation time, so, yeah, really, really good to be able to do that, which is, which is sweet, um, the uh, next episode's probably going to be about my evening, uh, tomorrow, or Friday, um just to let you guys know how OSS was, our secret spot was how the meet and mingle went and and all of that sort of stuff um, I'm really excited to go to OSS as well because it's a place that I've obviously heard a lot about through different people around around the place so yeah really am really excited to to check that out and, um, and then tell you guys about it as well so yeah really really looking forward to that um so we'll we'll move on to what this episode's actually about. It's probably going to be a relatively short one uh, comparatively. But obviously last episode we talked a fair bit about love. Um so we're going to look we're going to continue on that sort of path I guess, but we're going to look at the opposite side of it. So this week we're going to talk about when love ends or breakups or and that sort of thing. Um and what they actually do to your body and how you can sort of help yourself through that process as well. Uh, so it's going to be, it's a, it's a little bit of a different one. But I think it's really, really cool as well as a lot of knowledge and, and whatnot that goes into it. Obviously I talked a lot about the science of um, of love last time as well. And with all of the neurojournalines and whatnot that run through your body when this sort of stuff happens. So... This week, it's, it's, it's the same sort of, it's the same hormones that are involved in breakups as what there is in, um, well, th- during the throes of love, for lack of a better term, I guess. Um, so there's going to be a lot of similar language here. And we did talk about the balance of those neuroadrenalines, the estrogen, testosterone, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, in the last episode, and we talked about when it's unbalanced and how the reactions can come from that. Yeah, should be good. I'll just reiterate for everybody. Make sure you catch us on all the socials, check out the Patreon, all that sort of stuff. This episode does also go up on YouTube. But the other thing that I want to ask of you guys, just before we get into the nitty-gritty of everything, is if you could please, 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 please leave a review on whatever platform you listen to. So if it's iTunes, I love iTunes reviews I don't think you can on Spotify but I'm pretty sure you can through Apple Podcasts and all that sort of stuff so please leave a review even if it's a bad one um because I, w- I need to learn how to improve on what I'm doing as well so if you don't like it one way you're listening but if you don't enjoy it tell me why tell me little pointers that I can get better with so yeah without any further hold up without any more jibber jabber or anything like that uh Let's sort of get, let's, let's get into this a little bit. So, I'm, I'm going to start with an article that's titled, The Science Behind Why Breakups Suck. <laughs> um, it's not just, it's, it's more than we think, it's not just, hey, I've just lost somebody, it's a lot more. But, let's be honest, though, love feels like the greatest thing in the world when it's going right, it does, there's no two ways about it. And we stop functioning at our full capacity when love's involved. sometimes we lose motivation. Oh, when it ends, sorry, when it ends, we stop functioning at our full capacity, and we lose a bit of motivation. Challenges are just a little bit harder, and sometimes we feel like we won't love again. That's an arguably quite a common one uh, for me, especially. But there's a fair few studies that have uncovered why why they suck and it doesn't matter if you get dumped or you dump someone we tend to have very similar patterns when it comes to loss regardless of our perspective and that's not just breakups that's loss in general some breakups will hit it harder than others I know um, one that I had that was only 6 months old hit me harder than any other relationship that I've ever had um, to the point where I was on antidepressants again for a while Uh, I won't say again for the first time in my life I was on antidepressants just to just to sort of get through it but Some studies show that our brains tend to mess with us in some very specific and common ways. So we're going to look into that. Uh, We'll take a look at the psychological science behind breaking up. And as we move on through this episode as well, we'll talk about ways that you can... that can help you move on, I guess, for lack of a better term. So the first part of it is that we're hardwired to fear rejection. If you think of... Going out to a bar or anything like that. You're not drinking, nothing like that. Or even just somebody on the street, I guess. Um, How often can you actually go up to a person and, you know, strike up a conversation or ask a girl for a number or ask to go out for a coffee date or to dinner or anything like that? It's not the easiest thing to do. It's really not. But a bit of liquid courage sort of changes that sometimes. So, but it's it's very very difficult to think and that's because we're hardwired to we don't like being said no to we don't like being turned down for anything it makes us feel inferior not good enough but many many years ago rejection from your fellow humans meant death so if you're pushed away from your tribe of people and you had to survive on your own few people did thankfully nowadays social rejection doesn't equal a death sentence But aside from the surface of hardships, our bodies have a physical reaction as well. So a study conducted by the University of Amsterdam decided to take a look at what happens to us physically when unexpected rejection occurs. Coincidentally, it does affect our hearts. Study participants were presented with a series of unfamiliar faces and were asked to predict whether they would be liked by the other person. Following each judgment... And this is a quote from this study, sorry. Following each judgment... Participants were provided with feedback indicating that the person they had viewed had either accepted or rejected them. Feedback was associated with transient heart rate slowing and a return to baseline that was considerably delayed in response to unexpected social rejection. Our results revealed that the processing of unexpected social rejection is associated with a sizable response of the parasympathetic nervous system. So to put this in layman's terms, because that's wordy for me, I won't lie, the parasympathetic nervous system handles much of the body's work that doesn't require our intervention. So that's like sexual arousal, digestion, and the regulation of internal organs, like your heart, like your lungs, among other things. When study participants felt rejection, their heart rate slowed for a while. The effect was even more pronounced when the rejection was unexpected, and it also occurred if the participant feared the possibility – so if the participant's sitting there going, oh, I'm going to get rejected, going to get rejected, going to reject, get rejected, it makes it even worse. So with this part, what can we do about it? So because we have this built-in response to rejection, we tend to exaggerate the harm rejection actually causes us. It's not as bad as we think. While the end of an important relationship is substantial, it only affects a portion of our life, so only a small part, but we tend to blow it up. So we have a tendency to exaggerate reality because we can literally feel it in our hearts. hearts, Loose, yeah, I wouldn't say hearts, but it's in our brain, but regardless of the situation. So some of the things we can do is a little emotional triage before trying to process the rejection. It means they should identify emotional supports and ways to busy themselves while the shock of the loss and rejection sink in. It could take days or even months to begin to forget the feeling of the rejector's presence, so a person should allow a sufficient period of time to allow the immediate pain of the loss to sink in. In the meantime, it's normal normal to mourn the loss of a relationship by confiding in friends, family, crying, just to be sure. Just be sure to avoid unhealthy numbing behaviours like binge drinking, impulsive sexuality and promiscuity, overspending and that sort of thing. So I I, I, view, I view a breakup, for, for lack of a better term, as like a big drop. So I've talked in previous episodes, especially around the kink side of things and, and how you can get sub-drop. So... Um, what I mean by that is that you've reached such a high, such a big, big high, there's, there has to be a low at some point. And with a breakup, that would be the severe low of that. So you've got all of this adrenaline and everything running through your brain. Everything's being released. And then once that release stops, your body can't sustain it in your system for that long. So in this case, the the crux of it is the breakup and then you drop into that sort of stupor. And during that low period, we always say in the King Sing that don't make any severe life decisions, any big life-changing decisions, and that's sort of what's being said in this article as well, is to to try and shy away from that as much as you possibly can, uh, because it can be quite dangerous. Because of the physical response, many of us tend to turn to those numbing behaviours to avoid what we actually feel, which is understandable. When emotions manifest themselves in our bodies, the effects can be very powerful. Remember that you can't control these feelings, but you can control how you respond to them. Remind yourself that part of what you feel happens automatically and make a large effort to behave responsibly as your emotions might encourage you to do otherwise. So it's basically self-care. Once you go through a breakup, self-care is such a huge thing and use your support network. Hopefully you haven't gone through a relationship where you've had to leave or decided... Had to leave your um, leave your support network to be able to be with that person um, because when this happens, if and when this happens, you're going to have no safety net there, and you're just going to plummet, and that makes it ten times more difficult to deal with. The so next part is you're addicted to love and the benefits of partnership. We're going to move on from the from the breakup bit <laughs> a little bit here. Try and Lighten it up just a little bit uh, and definitely get away from that rejection side of things. When you love someone, you integrate them into your everyday. You think about them, they help you do things, they solve problems, and they just exist alongside you. When that all disappears, you feel lost because you actually lost something. For example, if your ex-partner always washed your dishes, doing it yourself will feel more arduous than ever. And it will drudge up the pain of the breakup. You'll feel like you can't accomplish certain tasks because your former significant other always helped you with them. This can make you feel inept and worthless, because on top of the existing sadness from missing someone you love, you can't handle daily tasks that were never a problem in the past. If that sounds bad, Stony Brook University conducted a study that found out the situation is actually worse. They compared the brains of people in love and those who'd recently lost it with the brains of drug addicts and here's what they discovered. The results of the study show that looking at a romantic rejector and cocaine craving have several neural correlates in common. The findings are consistent with the hypothesis that romantic rejection is a specific form of addiction. The perspective that rejection in love Involves subcortical reward, sla- reward gain-slash-loss systems. Critical to survival. Helps to explain why feelings and behaviours related to romantic rejection are difficult to control and lends insights to the high cross-cultural rates of stalking, homicide, suicide, and clinical depression associated with rejection and love. That's a really long sentence. Somebody needs to do some editing on that. But, so, basically... Somebody who comes off cocaine, for example, is the example I used in this, and somebody who's just lost a loved one, whether it be through rejection um, and whatnot, is very, very, very similar uh, because they've had this high, this high, this high of being in love or being on on cocaine and then they can't get it anymore, so it's a, it's a big, big dip on what it once was. That makes a big, 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 big difference. So what can we do about that? If you struggle to overcome the benefits of love because you're actually addicted to them, how can you move on? Sort of depends on the nature of the slack that you have to pick up in your ex's absence. Absence. Abstinence. Jeez. It's been a long couple of days, Tim. For example, if you're talking about financial matters or domestic tasks, then there's no easy way to get into the habit of retaking responsibility. If the tasks elicit pain, then a person just has to give themselves permission to cry or experience any associated anger. So let your feelings go. Let them out. It's fine. It may also help if the person tries to reframe taking over the things their partner used to do by telling themselves that it's part of reclaiming their independence and beginning the healing process. So I, I think this sort of thing comes out of a poor relationship and wanting to sort of go back to being your own person again um, and reclaiming those things going, yeah, I'm going back into into who I am as opposed to what's, uh, as opposed to what's just happened or what's happened with this relationship et cetera etc etc and this this is a this is a scary one um personally for me as well The more your relationships fail, the less you think they'll succeed so i've had a fair few failed relationships and i i I know that I'm quite guilty of this one, so i'm fucking um yeah, I'm going to go through some of the what-you-can-do-about-it part of this as well. So the more your relationships fail, the less you think they'll succeed. While you might not want to look at a relationship as a failure just because it ended, as you may have gotten many happy years before things went bad, you'll most likely label it that way. We have a hard time accepting that, what, that we succeeded on any level if something ends on bad terms. To make matters worse, the more we fail, the less we think of our ability. The goal of love starts to seem possible the more we let it slip away. A study conducted by, at Purdue University looked at the problem in another way. They measured the perceived difficulty of football players and their field goal performance. And this is just a confidence thing in, in general. This is, I would look at this in what I call football as well, not just American football, which is what this article's is saying, um, and their goal-scoring ratio if they're playing as a forward or how many times they lose to when they win. Participants who made more successful kicks perceived the field goal posts to be further apart and perceived the crossbar to be closer to the ground compared with participants who made fewer kicks. Interestingly, the current results show perceptual effects related to performance only after kicking the football, but not before kicking. We also found that the types of performance errors influenced specific aspects of the perception. The more kicks that were missed left or right of the target, the narrower the go- field goal post looked. The more kicks that were missed short of the target, the taller the field goal crossbar looked. These results demonstrate that performance is a factor in size perception. So, I've just used a sport analogy to talk about love. And you you, you might be thinking, how, how do these things relate? And I can understand that too. How these can relate to lost love. Failure at anything makes challenges seem more and more insurmountable. And this isn't just in love. This is anything. If you think of a even a university test, the bar, the bar exam in America, the LSATs, or whatever you want to you want to look at. The more you fail, the more difficult it looks each time. When we fail, we convince ourselves that we have a harder task at hand. This can result in a vicious cycle where we continue to fail because we believe we have such a little chance of success. In order to continue on with the pursuit of love, I'll oh say. Sorry, sorry, this is the what you can do about a part. In order to continue on with the pursuit of love after a breakup, that cycle must be broken. And the way that we can look at the self-improvement part of this is that when there are multiple disrupted relationships, so a few that have happened one after another, you can definitely sort of examine the commonalities between those relationships. Um, and usually, it comes down to the, to processing the one thing that every one thing every single one of our relationships have had in common. The person themselves so this ultimately leads us to working on them becoming the right person for the next relationship rather than simply trying to find the right person to be with for that relationship right and why do we do that and it, it's, its that's a tough question to answer um, because it's usually their issues that led them to choose less than ideal mates or engage in unhealthy relationship behaviors eg you were cheated on by one ex, their issue. You were cheated on by multiple exes then you're probably doing something that leads you to these people. By actively working on one's own issues you can hopefully develop qualities and skills that will make you more attractive to emotionally healthy suitors. Self-improvement is just the first step though. It creates a foundation for moving forward but if you still have to work to convince yourself you can actually find love again you can then begin convincing yourself. You can then convince yourself that a health relationship is possible, because you're healthier emotionally speaking than ever before. You'll also hopefully have a better understanding of how to identify the red flags of unhealthy suitors and the hallmarks of someone who will engage in relationship-promoting behaviors. In other words, you're learning to be a better dancer, so you shouldn't be too scared to get on the dance floor. <laughs> Building confidence takes a lot of work. It won't happen overnight. Surround yourself with good people who care about you, so you don't forget that you matter. Let them support you as you build up, build yourself back up. While you may feel devastated and horribly imperfect at the start, you were that way when you felt happier too. The sadness only points to the problem you didn't notice before. In a way, that's better, as you can only fix the issue or the issues you actually know exist. So, next thing that can happen is you're forever connected to your past and how can you move forward from that? You'll always move towards the future seeing as that's how time flows but you can never forget the past. At first this can make moving on very difficult but in the future it can provide a source of strength and confidence As previously discussed, overcoming failure can create a great source of strength. That makes handling any future breakups you may have to endure a lot easier. Still, the past sticks with you in all sorts of ways as we enter a new relationship. You look at your previous mistakes and try to avoid the hardship that they cause as you find new love. While, While the past can sometimes provide a source of useful education, it can also paralyze you. Before you engage in any new relationships, you could assess whether or not you've sufficiently moved on from the last. If we recognise that we have a lasting negative side effect from a previous relationship, then we should probably reconsider entering a new one. If we insist on dating, then we owe it to our new mates to let them know that we will need to proceed slowly and with caution before going all in with the relationship. And that's purely just because have been hurt before and we need time to feel ready enough to open up and allow yourself to, really, to reach the level of emotional vulnerability that a relationship uh, requires. When you're actually ready to move forward, you should watch for how your past affects you. You can easily avoid problems by keeping a good line of communication open with your partner and avoid making any assumptions. That's just a given in my opinion. Your current partner's behaviours may sometimes mirror an ex-partner's, but they may not have the same meaning. For example, your ex may have allowed the dishes to pile up in the sink as a passive-aggressive way of telling you to do your part of the chores, while your current partner might do the same thing purely out of laziness. If you start to draw parallels, have a conversation and explain what your previous partner used to do and ask your current partner about their motivation so you don't make those incorrect assumptions. Breakups stick with us and it can be hard to let go of the past. We're always gonna hurt regardless of how with a consistent. Remember that you're wired to feel pain. Lost love comes with an actual day-to-day losses. And moving forward can seem harder the more you have to do it. We all experience these problems and have to fight to move past it. If you can keep mind that we all have to tackle these same challenges at one point or another, you'll know that you're not alone. So we'll move a little bit more into the science side uh, of it again, and we'll talk about how the brain reacts to a romantic breakup. We haven't really um, gone into that too much. But if you're in the midst of a breakup, you, you, you sort of feel like a different person, right? You find yourself spending a lot of time missing that camaraderie that closeness and you sort of long for your ex constantly checking their facebook updates wondering what went wrong this shift in pattern in patterns of thought and behavior may be caused by neural changes that occur after a breakup and we t- we touched on brain scanning uh, a moment ago but this is sort of the next step forward for it so neuroimaging studies have found that being rejected even by a stranger, and we talked about this just a moment ago, affects many of the same regions in the brain as when experiencing physical pain. And we talked about Helen Fisher last episode as well, um, and she has a hand in this as well. And uh, and a lot of what we talked about last time. So the participants in this uh, in this study that Helen Fisher put forward these participants uh, they looked at pictures of the person who had recently dumped them, and they exhibited brain activity in several regions associated with reward, motivation, addiction, and OCD, obsessive- compulsive disorder. This helps to explain why we might struggle to let go after a romantic relationship ends. Griefs usually gr- uh, grief, sorry, is usually a large part of the breakup process. So in another brain scanning study, Researchers asked women who had gone through a recent breakup to think about their ex in an fMRI machine and they found patterns of brain activity consistent with feelings of sadness, rumination and chronic depression. And for some people heartache can continue months after a split. A team of German investigators studying a small group of people who were still hung up on an ex up to six months after the relationship had ended also found brain patterns consistent with depression such as decreased activity in the insula and the anterior and posterior cingulate cortices. Although such studies show that heartbreak is associated with obsession and grief, the findings are still limited. Our understanding primarily comes from research in which participants are asked to actively think about their ex, something people probably don't do all the time. Additionally, studies tend to be about the heartbroken rather than the heartbreakers and focus only on the period of misery post-split. Luckily for many people, the heartache from a lost relationship fades over time, and life goes back to normal. For some, the rupture might even become a positive experience, allowing a person to get away from a dysfunctional relationship and fall in love again. So that's about the brain. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about the body as well. So we, we know that breakups are emotional emotional roller coasters. Um, except for the fact that it's not visible from the start. You can say no thanks to it and that'd be the end of it. It's more like being under a roller coaster. <laughs> Before we knew the signs, we all knew the feeling, and used words associated with physical pain hurt, pain, ache are used to describe the pain of relationship breakup. And now we know why. The emotional pain of a breakup and the physical pain have something in common. They both activate the same part of the brain. We know now that um, the scans of the brain share the same neural pathways as physical, with physical um, hurt and emotional pain. Forty people uh, who had recently been through an unwanted breakup Again, we, we go back to the fact that it's usually the ones that are, have been broken up with, not the ones that are doing the breaking up, so I'd, I'd be really interested to see what it would be like on the side that is doing the breaking up. As they said at the photo of their ex, the part of the brain associated with physical pain lit up quite significantly. Researcher Ethan Cross found that powerfully inducing feelings of social rejection activate regions of the brain that are involved in physical pain sensation which are rarely activated in neuroimaging studies of emotion. He He continued to say that the findings are consistent with the idea that the experience of social rejection or social loss, which more generally may represent a distinct emotional experience, is also uniquely associated with physical pain. So... Yeah, in, in further support of the overlap between physical and social pain, Tylenol, which is an over the counter medication for physical pain, has also been shown to reduce emotional hurt. And they did this through uh, a study where people were taking Tylenol for three weeks and they reported less hurt feelings and social pain on a daily basis than those who took a placebo. The effect was also evident in brain scans. Uh, with the same, the same thing, obviously. Nobody's suggesting that broken that the broken hearted turn into pa- turn to pain medication to reduce their lean towards Kleenex, Baskin Robbins, and repeated viewings of Love Actually. Long-term use will absolutely kill your liver, and somebody else is waiting to fall in love with you, but you and your liver have to stay friends forever. The physical side of a broken heart, so the the human brain loves love, it releases all those happy hormones that we've talked about, your dopamine, your oxytocin, all of that sort of fun. But when the one you love leaves, the supply of feel-good hormones takes a dive, and you get your core to soul and your epinephrine come through, your stress hormones. In small doses, stress hormones are heroic, ensuring we respond quickly and effectively to threat. However, in times of long-term distress, such as broken heart, the stress hormones accumulate and cause trouble. Here's what's behind the physical symptoms of a breakup. So, Too much cortisol in the brain sends blood to major muscle groups. They tense up, ready to respond to a threat. So your fight or flight that we talked about last episode. However, without real need for a physical response, the muscle have no opportunity to expend the energy. So the swelling of these muscles gives rise uh, gives rise to headaches, a stiff neck, and that terrible feeling that your chest is being squeezed. So to ensure the muscles have an adequate blood supply, cortisol diverts blood away from the digestive system. So this causes your cramps, your diarrhea, loss of appetite, that sort of thing. And when these stress hormones, your cortisol, your epinephrine, Uh, run rampant, the immune system can struggle as well. So this increases vulnerability to bugs and illnesses, hence what's so often called the breakup cold. If there's a steady release of cortisol, this might cause sleep problems and interfere with the capacity to make sound judgments. And as we've just talked about, breakups also activate the area of your brain that processes, processes craving and addiction. So, losing a relationship can throw you into into a type of withdrawal, which is why it's hard to function. You ache for your ex, sometimes literally, and can't get him or her out of your head. Like any addiction, this will pass. In a relationship, your mind, your body, and the core of you adjust to being intimately connected to someone. When that someone leaves, the brain has to readjust. The pain can be relentless. But eventually, the body chemistry will change back to normal, and the hurt will diminish. Getting through a breakup is, much, is as much a physical process as an emotional one. Remember that, and know it'll get easier. You'll get there. It's interesting about this this, this last little bit here with the body chemistry changing back to normal. The pain can be relentless, and the breakup is as much a physical as a as a mental one as well. Because the the next thing that I wanted to talk to is. Something that's, that I've always found really quite interesting. And it's called takotsubo Cardi- Cardiomyopathy. Takotsubo Cardiomyopathy. This is also um, known as Broken Heart Syndrome. It is named after an octopus trap. And that's not all that's unusual about this reversible heart condition. It occurs almost exclusively in women does happen with men, but not so much. But years of gender-based research have shown that in matters of the heart, sex differences abound. One striking example is a temporary heart condition known as Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. First described in 1990 in Japan, more than 90% of reported cases are in women aged 58 to 75, and research suggests that up to 5% of women evaluated for a heart attack actually have this disorder. It's only recently been reported in the United States and may go largely unrecognized. Fortunately, most people recover rapidly with no long-term heart damage. So some of the features of this so-called broken heart syndrome is chest pain and shortness of breath after severe stress, electrocardiogram abnormalities that mimic those of a heart attack, no evidence of coronary artery obstruction movement abnormalities in the left ventricle of the heart, ballooning of the left ventricle, and recovery within a month. So it's the weakening of the left ventricle of the heart, which is the main pumping chamber for your heart. And it usually comes as a result of severe emotional or physical stress, such as a sudden illness, the loss of a loved one, a serious accident, or a natural disaster. And that's why the condition is also called stress-induced cardiomyopathy or broken heart syndrome. Again, the, moans, the main systems are chest pain and shortness of breath. But some of the stresses that are involved with it uh, include a sudden drop in blood pressure, serious illness, surgery or medical procedure, severe pain, domestic violence, asthma attack, receiving bad news, car accident or other unexpected loss, illness, injury of a close relative, friend or pet, fierce argument, financial loss, intense fear, public speaking, uh, or even just a surprise party or other sudden surprise. The reason there's so much there is that the precise cause isn't known, but es- experts believe that it's a surging stress hormone like adrenaline, which essentially stun the heart, triggering changes in the heart muscle cells, or coronary blood vessels. They prevent the left ventricle from contracting effectively. <clears throat> I kind of liken that to a, um, if you think of like an EpiPen, where it gives you a shot of adrenaline to restart your heart, basically reset it it's, and stun it. This is sort of the other way around, where it stuns your heart into going the other way, not helping you out, but making it quite difficult for you. Researchers suspect that older women are more vulnerable because of reduced levels of estrogen after menopause. In studies with rats whose ovaries have been removed, the ones given estrogen while under stress had less left ventricle dysfunction and higher levels of certain heart-protective substances. Takotsubo symptoms are indistinguishable from those of a heart attack. And an electrocardiogram, or ECG, may show abnormalities similar to those found in some heart attacks. In particular, change is known as ST segment elevation. Consequently, imaging studies and other measures are needed to rule out a heart attack. To get a definitive diagnosis, clinicians look for the following. No evidence of an angiogram or of blockages in the coronary arteries, the most common cause of heart attack. A rapid but small rise in cardiac biomarkers, so substances released into the blood when the heart is damaged. In a heart attack, these biomarkers take longer to rise, but peak higher. An echocardiogram, or an ultrasound image, other imaging technique that shows abnormal movements in the walls of the left ventricle. And the most common abnormality there is the ballooning of the lower part of the left ventricle. During contraction, or a systole, this bulging ventricle resembles a takotsubo, a pot used by Japanese fishermen to trap octopuses. Another term for the disorder is apical ballooning syndrome. An x-ray, there's you can see these changes in an x-ray, and it's quite reversible as well. There is a way to treat this so-called broken heart syndrome as well, but there's no evidence-based guidelines for treating it. Clinicians usually recommend standard heart failure medications such as beta blockers, ACE inhibitors and diuretics. They may give aspirin to patients who also have atherosclerosis, so a plaque buildup in the arterial walls, although there's little little evidence on long-term therapy. Beta blockers may be continued indefinitely to help prevent recurrence by reducing the effects of adrenaline and other stress hormones. It's also important to alleviate any physical or emotional stress that may have played a role in triggering disorder. Most of the abnormalities in systolic function and ventricle wall movement clear up in 1-4 to weeks and most patients recover fully within 2 months. Death is rare but heart failure occurs in about 20% of patients. It's treated with diuretics, agents that improve heart muscle contraction and other therapies. Rarely reported complications include arrhythmias, so your abnormal heart rhythms, obstruction of blood flow from the left ventricle, and rupture of the ventricle wall. So it, it's kind of interesting that there is such thing as what they call the broken heart syndrome. It's because they don't really know the cause. They can't sit there and say it's because of a broken heart or anything like that. It's a surge of adrenaline more than anything else is the most likely uh... the most likely thing that's happened at that point so i think it's a bit of a bit of a stretch to call it that in my personal opinion although i can understand that i can understand that so we're gonna move on to the the final bit of this now we've got about Uh, about 15 minutes or so but like I said it could be a quick one there's not a whole heap of research into the breakup side of things Uh, as we've noted it's usually from the ones that have been broken up with because they want to understand what's happened a wee bit more and more likely to go in and do it so we're going to go to a Time magazine article to to close us off here and it's um, best way to get over a breakup according to science it's written by Andrew Gregory uh, in May last year, and as usual, I'm paraphrasing as best I can. But the aftermath of a breakup can be devastating, and it can lead to insomnia, intrusive thoughts, all that sort of stuff that we've already had a we had a bit of a chat about. But in a small new study published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology, researchers tested a variety of cognitive strategies and found one that worked best for helping people get over a breakup. The researchers gathered a group of 24 heartbroken people, ages 20 to 37, who had been in a long-term relationship for an average of two and a half years. Some had been dumped, while others had ended their relationship, but all were upset about it, and most still loved their exes. Now, I'm actually quite happy about seeing this, um, because they're starting to use some people that were the ones doing the breaking up so that's really really cool so the first the first strategy was to negatively reappraise their ex the person was asked to mull over the unfavorable aspects of their lover like a particularly annoying habit by highlighting the ex's negatives or the negative traits the blow ideally would be softened In another prompt, called Love Reappraisal, people were told to read and believe statements of acceptance, like, it's okay to love someone I'm no longer with. Instead of fighting how they feel, they were told to accept their feelings of love as perfectly normal, without judgment. I like that one a lot. Because it's so abundantly true that you don't need to be with somebody that you love. Right? You can... Love whoever you want. You don't have to be with them to love them. Third one's distraction, right? To think about positive things unrelated to the ex, like a favorite food. Just as distracting oneself can help reduce cravings, it may also help a person overcome the persistent thoughts that come with a breakup. The fourth prompt of the control condition. Didn't ask them to think about anything in particular. Next, the researchers showed everyone a photo of their ex, realistic touch, since these often pop up in real life on social media. They measured the intensity of emotion in response to the photo using electrodes placed on the posterior of the scalp. The EEG reading of the late positive potential is a measure of not only emotion, but motivated attention, or to what degree the person is captivated by the photo. In addition, the researchers measured how positive or negative the people felt, and how much love they felt for the ex, using a scale and questionnaire. According to the EEG readings, all three strategies significantly decreased people's emotional response to the photos, relative to their responses in the control trials, which didn't use prompts. However, only the people who looked at their lover in a negative light also had a decrease in feelings of love toward their ex. But these people also reported being in a worse mood than when they started, suggesting that these negative thoughts, although helpful for moving on, may be dis- distressing to themselves in the short term. Distraction, on the other hand, made fee- people feel better overall, but had no effect on how much they still loved their ex. Distraction is a form of avoidance which has been shown to reduce recovery from a breakup, says the co-author of the study, Sandra Langislack who's the director of the Neurocognition of Emotion and Motivation Lab at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. So the strategy should be used sparingly to boost mood in the short term. Love reappraisal, so the one that I thought was actually really quite good, isn't. It showed no effect on either love or mood, but still dulled the emotional response to the photo, which is, yeah, all right, I guess. The authors classify love for another person as learned motivation, similar to thirst or hunger, that pushes a person towards their partner in thought and in behaviour. That can, in turn, elicit different emotions based on the situation. When love is felt by both parties, one can feel joy, or in the case of a breakup, persistent love feelings are associated with sadness, difficulty recovering and independent thoughts of oneself. Classifying love as a motivation is controversial in the field. Other experts believe that love is an emotion, like anger, or a script, like riding a bike. However, the endurance of love feelings, which last much longer than a typical bout of anger or joy, the complexity of these feelings, both positive and negative, and the intensity of infatuation all signal a motivation. To get over a breakup, heartbroken people change their way of thinking which takes time, just as it can be challenging to fight other motivations like food or drug cravings. Love regulation doesn't work like an on-off switch. Langeslag says, quote, to make a lasting change, you'll probably have to regulate your love feelings regularly, Unquote. because the effects likely wear off after a short time. Writing a list of as many negative things about your ex as you can think of once a day until you feel better may be effective, though this exercise tends to make people feel worse in that short term. Lina said that this effect goes away, and her past research found that negative reappraisal also decreased infatuation and attachment to the ex. So it will make you feel better in the long run, but terrible in the short run. The findings are particularly relevant in the age of social media when photos of exes and the resulting pangs of love may come up frequently. All three strategies may make it easier for people to deal with encounters and reminders of the ex-partner in real life and on social media. So I just want to go back through those strategies again and, and summarize them. So the first strategy was to negatively reappraise their ex. So you'd sit there uh, and think about your ex and go, okay, this is all the bad stuff. And that helps you get over your ex quite well, um, but it does make you feel quite crappy in the short term. The next one was love reappraisal. So people were told to read and believe statements of acceptance, like it's okay to love someone I'm no longer with. This seemed to have little effect on much, but in the long run it's... they. Felt less love towards their, uh, less issues with their ex or anything like that and felt better in general. And the distraction part did not help them get over feelings of their ex, but it did help them uh, feel a little bit better. So I think for for me, the mix of strat- the first strategy and so the negatively reappraisal of the ex and the distraction, if you could sort of mix those two together, you know, distract yourself in the short-term and then start negatively reappraising your X um, then that that's probably going to be what works best I think by the looks of it from what I'm reading anyway Uh, it seems as though that might be the best way to get over an X really really quite interesting stuff here I'm not gonna lie I've I've learned a lot uh, from this episode as well Um, and sort of how to deal with things a bit better myself, which is is really, really, really good. I haven't gone through a breakup recently, um, but I thought that this was a really, really cool thing to talk about. So I did. Uh, I hope you've all learned something from this, because I've learned a whole heap as well. Um, like I said, it's a it's a relatively short episode compared to usual, but... We're all locked up, we're all done, we're all sorted. Thank you once again for listening to the A-slut podcast. And never forget, let's stay A-slutty.
0: touch of your lips, dear, but much more for the touch of your whips, dear. You can raise welts like nobody else as we dance to the masochism tango. Say our love is a flame, not an amber. Say it's me that you want to dismember. Blacken my eye, set fire to my tie, as we dance to the masochism tango. At your command, before you here I stand, my heart is in my hand. Yeah. It's here that I must be my heart entreats. Just hear those savage beats, and go put on your cleats, and come and trample me. Your heart is hard as stone or mahogany. That's why I'm in such exquisite agony. My soul is on fire. It's aflame with desire, which is why I perspire when we tango. You caught my nose in your left castanet love i can feel the pain yet love every time i hear drums and i envy the rose that you held in your teeth love with the thorns underneath love Sticking into your gums Your eyes cast a spell that bewitches uh, The last time I needed twenty stars. Ditches, uh, to sew up the gash you made with your lash As we dance to the masochism tango uh, Bash in my brain and make me scream with pain Then kick me once again and say we'll never part I know too well I'm underneath your spell So darling, if you smell something burning, it's my heart uh, <laughs> you Take your cigarette from its holder And... Burn your initials in my shoulder, fracture my spine, and swear that you're mine, as we dance to the massacre. tango.